Welcome to When Pigs Fly, a podcast that's uncovering Cincinnati's rich business history dating back from the 1800s today. We talk to companies to learn the ups and downs of entrepreneurship, what it takes to grow a successful business, and to simply prost to future innovation. I'm one of your co-hosts, Ellie Martin. And I'm your other co-host, Patrick Bailey. And today we are having a very fun episode because we are bringing back one of our favorites, Greg Hand. He is the historian. He helped us launch our very first episode. I am excited. I love history. And Greg Hand is great. And I'm excited for today's topic of discussion. Yes, we will be talking all things Cincinnati food. Food history here in Cincinnati. Hey, who doesn't like talking about food? I know I like talking about food. I, I like eating better, but <laughs> yeah, same here. And we have so many great, you know. Think about some of our great brands that we have, like Graders, and uh, think of all of our chili brands, all starting on with Empress Chili to Skyline. We have La Roses and Izzy's, and all of those great brands. And we'll touch a little bit on that, but we're also gonna touch on, you know, what was the lifestyle. What was the food, quote unquote, we like to use this word lifestyle a lot these days. What was it like back then? How did you get your groceries? Where were you eating? What What were were they eating? What were you eating at the bars, you know? Where did Kroger come into play? All of that. (laughs) So we're going to kind of get a bigger overarching picture of what the food scene might have looked like. And I'm really excited to learn all of that because Greg delivers it impeccably. And... All our listeners have definitely wrote that in the reviews mm-hmm. and messages to us. So if you have not liked, comment, downloaded any of our episodes yet, please do so on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, feel free to reach out to us at mm-hmm. whenpigsfly.fm. So that's host at whenpigsfly.fm. And tell us your thoughts. And if you have anybody that you think should be on the show, reach out. And we can have a really cool episode like we are about to have with Greg Hand. Amen. And with that, let's bring him in. Greg Hand, we are so happy to have you back. I have heard a lot of people say that they really, really enjoyed that very first episode that we produced right out the gate. So obviously, you know, if you haven't listened to we it had yet, to bring you how back. you haven't, yeah, we had to bring you back. So, but today, what's fun is we're going to be talking about food. Who doesn't like yeah, there you about go. food? Cincinnati history. But right out I'm the gate, I'm hungry right now. I'm hungry right now. Right out the gate, though, what is your favorite Cincinnati? food, maybe restaurant brand, go-to, oh, staple. Oh my goodness. There, there is just so much, but I got a sweet tooth. I'd have to go with Grater's ice cream. Oh, you and me Ooh. both. Yeah. What, like, what, what flavor Grater's? Oh, I, I, like the, I like the flavors where you can just mine the pint and come up with a gargantuan chunk of chocolate. Chunk. Yes, <laughs> thank you. And some people who, who are new to Grater's and then they you know, get one of those chocolate chunks. They're like, what is this? I'm like, that is pure happiness in a pint. Right there. (laughs) That is happiness in a pint. Okay. So with that said, today we are talking about Cincinnati food history. So Greg, let's begin. Could you paint a picture as to what, you know, a night out of dining and the restaurant scene may have looked like back in the early days. Okay, I'd like to begin actually with a joke, with with okay. with with, right. an, with an old joke, a, a joke that is <laughs> is actually older than me. Um, 
<laughs> the the uh, you've probably heard this a million times. It's a, it's an old vaudeville joke where one guy says to the other, "Who was that lady I saw you with last night?" And the guy says, "That was no lady. That was my wife." <laughs> okay. Now, most people who hear that joke think that the wife is being insulted. She's no lady, but in fact, it is the lady who is being insulted. Back in the day, if you were seen with a woman after hours, there were only two choices for who that woman was. She was either your wife or she was a prostitute. Mm. And so if you Uh were seen on the streets of Cincinnati with a woman and somebody says, you know, who was that lady I saw you with last night? What they're really asking is, who was the prostitute? So they're oh they're insulting goodness. the guy, not the yeah, not see, the lady. right? And wow. I bring that up because this gets into your question about what a night out was like. Dates did not exist pre say nineteen twenty nineteen. So Hinge and Tinder wasn't a thing. There was no oh, swipe abs- left or right. <laughs> abs- absolutely. In fact, in the eighteen eighties, uh, the Cincinnati Enquirer used to run personal ads, and young people would use these personal ads as their Hinge and Tinder. So you you would open the paper and there would be a little classified ad and it would say something like, uh, would the young lady dressed in yellow who saw a gentleman tip his hat on Walnut Street, whatever, please respond to inquirer box, dot, dot, dot. And it was condemned by the authorities, by the church authorities, because this bypassed the father. At, at, at that time in the 1880s, like if you wanted to write a letter to somebody in your class and, and you thought, maybe I'll come over and see her, you know, that sort yeah, of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. All mail went through the father. So the father would determine, you know, if somebody wrote you a postcard or even sent you a letter, the father would just open all the mail and determine whether you got mail or not. And so, so by crazy. using these personal ads, you got around uh, dad censoring censoring the mail. And so all of that is to say that the nightlife that we're asking about here in old time Cincinnati would have been very, very different because there were so many men out with prostitutes and their mistresses at night. Very few wives were really out on dates with their husband or or having dinner with their husband. And so a night out very often was just men. Women stayed at home with the kids, or even if they didn't have kids, women stayed at home, maybe with uh, female relatives, mothers, that sort of thing. Men went to the club, went to the saloons, went to the bars, that sort of thing. And so, so nights out, uh, when we're talking about like 1870, 1880s. This is totally different from what we do today. So what it was considered late back then, like, I don't know. I don't imagine yeah. people stay out till like 2 a.m. Like, Oh, actually, yes. Oh, actually, okay. yes. Yes, 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 yes. You, you um, even if you were like an executive type, you got to the office, um, you know, 8 or 9 a.m. And of course, you had a long lunch, you know, uh, 
I, I don't know if they had martinis, but but uh, the equivalent of a three <laughs> martini wasn't a thing. Yeah, three martini <laughs> lunch would have gone on. Uh, you would have gotten out of work six or seven o'clock at night, and then dinner was nine or ten. Oh wow! And many many reports of men coming home at three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning, and then of course they'd they'd be back at the office at at Jeez. at, at, at eight. So. So I could not hang with those. That's, people. That's, yeah. 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 So, and, and this, this just went on, uh, you know, uh, over and over and over again, which is uh, one of the reasons why they all died at 45. Um, <laughs> but the, the, the big change, uh, the reason, you know, we have a different perception of what a night out is actually became, uh, came about because of prohibition. One yeah. of the things that uh, the prohibition did is by forcing drinking underground, suddenly it is now proper for women to drink with men. Uh, before prohibition, it was very unseemly mm. for women to be drinking with men. Some of the saloons used to have a women's parlor, but it was just for women. The men were, were in the bar room. And if there was any woman in there, she was for sale. And so with prohibition, you have the speakeasies, women and men in the same environment, drinking the same things, dancing together, uh, totally upended uh, the rules of society. And so we now have an environment in which you now have restaurants as mm. restaurants instead yeah. of restaurants as a place that was basically a saloon that served sandwiches. I, I was going to ask, what what kind of food did they serve at like the bars? Like they oh, really yeah. didn't have fryers. Yeah, then like yeah. you can't just get chicken wings. Uh, the the equivalent of chicken wings back in the in the eighteen hundreds. Well, well, uh, actually, this probably goes into like the nineteen thirties. From from the very very beginning of Cincinnati up until the 1930s, the equivalent of chicken wings was oysters. What? C Cincinnati. In Cincinnati? Cincinnati went through a ton of oysters. What? Transportation in Cincinnati or to Cincinnati was improved to deliver oysters faster. And so the oysters came largely from Baltimore at the very begin very beginning of Cincinnati, we're talking 1800, 1790, 1800s, yeah. they used to deliver oysters in cans. Uh, so uh, oysters in were cans? in cans. East oysters were either pickled, pickled oysters, or they were spiced. And when you look up the recipes for spices, Ooh. it's abysmal. I, I would I don't think I would oh. ever eat a cinnamon flavored oyster. I like compare this to Ew. spam and I would still take spam over that. Yeah, right. But by the 1830s, there were rapid mail routes from Baltimore to Wheeling, West Virginia. So you could get from Baltimore to Wheeling, West Virginia in two days mm. and, and oysters would be packed on ice so they, that you would pack them in ice in Baltimore. You, you would get them halfway to Wheeling change the ice the next day you'd get to wheeling and at wheeling they'd be put on a steamboat that that would head down the ohio river and it would take two days to get to cincinnati so oysters were only four days old when they got to cincinnati wow. pretty similar to today it was so lucrative 
to ship oysters that they crammed these male stagecoaches filled with barrels with ice and oysters to the extent that the stagecoaches would break down and mail would be late being delivered. And your mail would probably stink like fish. And stink like fish, yes. Oh my God. And how long did that last for? That lasted until they got a reliable uh, railroad route. And one of the reasons for a direct railroad route, you know, the train route, keep in mind, the first big train route that landed in Cincinnati was the Baltimore and Ohio. So Mm. the Uh train route was set up to deliver oysters. No way. We had an oyster issue. (laughs) Now, how how much oysters did they actually eat? There are roads in Cincinnati where if you dig down far enough, you will see that the roads were paved with oyster shells. What do we... Are there any roads that you know of off the top of your head? The two that I know specifically are Wardell Avenue and Bodno, the the north end of Bodno in Westwood. Bodno. Yeah. Interesting. Oh, that, your neck of the woods too. Right, right yes, in right that? in my neck of the woods. If you <laughs> dig down far enough, the paving is inches and feet of of oysters. We're going to go on an archaeology. So, yeah, dig. I know this is fast. So, it, but if you weren't eating oysters, right? It sounds like yeah. everyone was eating oysters at some point in time. What were the other alternatives? Because you know we had yeah. pigs running loose throughout the street. Absolutely, so I something something there. Absolutely, and in fact, if you look in the old slang dictionaries, they have a term called the Cincinnati oyster. The Cincinnati oyster. And do you know what it was? It was a pig's foot. It was a pig. <laughs> the oh, it was Cincinnati a foot? A pig's foot? The pig's foot. So you'd go to the bar, you'd go to the bar and you order order your beer. And, you know, the, 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 the famous sign says a wiener worst with each drink. <laughs> but what was a lot more common was you'd get a pickled pig's foot. And they called that the Cincinnati oyster. So you'd... That is, uh, <laughs> what about the rest of the pig? Why would they... I mean, we obviously well, the, weren't frying up like chocolate-covered bacon or anything. <laughs> <laughs> no, the uh, rest of the pig was was uh, so valuable they were shipping it out of Cincinnati, and so this is why this is why uh, Geta is so big in Cincinnati because uh, pigs' feet are leftovers, and mm-hmm. Geta t- the Geta that you get today is wonderful stuff and everything. But it's yeah. made it's made with decent cuts of pork. You know, if you look for a recipe, yeah. it'll say like pork shoulder or something like that. Those are good cuts. Back in the day, ghetto was a way to get rid of the scraps. So if you look at the Germanic origins of ghetto, it comes about because uh, these were these were farmers who raised pigs for a landowner. And so the landowner got the bacon and and the uh, the pork belly and the ham and the pork shoulder. All of that went to the castle where the peasants were left with the feet and the scraps and the chitlins and, and that sort. Of, and that, that became the ghetto. 
And for people who don't know what Geta is, and Greg, you can step in on this if I say this wrong, it's really just a mash of, again, your the parts of pork with oats and spices yep. to make an interesting patty of sorts. Yeah, it's in a family of foods called uh, grain sausages, where, where, grain they, so- yes. where, where they use oatmeal. So with that said, what are some, that's a huge Cincinnati invention for us. What other main food inventions were created here? Actually, you know, when you look at the things people talk about as distinctive Cincinnati foods, mm-hmm. very, very few of them were actually invented here. So so Geta, of course, was imported from Germany. All, all mm-hmm. the Germans who came here brought that idea. Even the distinctive ice creams like Grater's, uh, they make a point of telling you that it's made in the French pot style, uh, mm. and and so uh, so that st- that very cream rich form of ice cream is is imported. Our chili is really Macedonian. It's it's a Macedonian meat sauce. Yeah. However, there is one very distinctive food that was invented here in Cincinnati and had a profound effect on not only Cincinnati cuisine, uh, but on American cuisine. And that is Crisco. Like the Crisco the little, is, like, wow, you like, really just thing? threw for a curveball in that one. What? Yeah. Yeah. Crisco, uh, Crisco was invented uh, by a, a German chemist named E.C. Kaiser. He lived in Cincinnati and he was experimenting with cottonseed oil. And Cincinnati happened to have uh, a fair amount of cottonseed oil. Is that because of the trade routes with the South? You got it, absolutely. We are sending pork down South and the South is sending cotton and and cottonseed up here. And one of uh, Nicholas Longworth's uh, descendants, I, I forget who, had actually a, a, a plant, a factory for manufacturing cottonseed oil here in Cincinnati. And uh, Mr. Kaiser was experimenting with this stuff and he crystallized it and, and came up with a crystalline form of cottonseed oil. And so it's Chris Co. Oh crystallized cottonseed oil. And he, huh. went, he went to Procter & Gamble and uh, Procter and Gamble got interested in this idea and got the uh, the formula from him and started manufacturing this stuff. Now, you know, selling people on crystallized cottonseed oil that's manufactured in a factory uh, doesn't seem easy yeah, to do. Yeah, this this is a this is a time period where you're not really worried about organic foods. Mm-mm. <laughs> but the idea of factory-made foods was just totally uh, alien. Did it take some time for it to really catch on? No, because one of the marketing geniuses at Procter & Gamble realized the perfect market for Crisco, which was Jewish families. Oh, for because kosher. For kosher, for kosher yes. food, Jewish families relied on chicken fat, when they were cooking anything involving meats, because the, the mm. essence of kosher cooking is you cannot mix uh, milk and meat. And so butter, 
cannot go anywhere near meat. Uh, you can't even, for instance, if you're serving a meat meal, you can't serve pastries for dessert that were manufactured with butter. That violates uh, uh, the kosher rules. And so uh, this idea of coming up with an artificial oil, an artificial fat that could replace both chicken fat and butter was the marketing idea. And Procter & Gamble used to publish cookbooks about Crisco in Yiddish really? to, wow. to promote this idea. And, and, so, and Cincinnati has a large Jewish yes. population, right? Yeah, and a very well-connected Jewish population because as the home of Reform Judaism, a lot of rabbis would come to Cincinnati for their training and then go around the United States. And so and so people who had come into Cincinnati and learned about Crisco would move out to other parts of the country. And that really helped develop the market for Crisco. So that, as, as near as I can tell, that is probably the most influential Cincinnati invention. That you really <laughs> threw us for a curveball on that one, I have to admit. Now, do you know, I mean, this might be a stretch of a question. So with that said, do you know any brands that still stand today that may have really benefited from utilizing Crisco? That I don't know. Yeah. that Because I, I, we'll be talking to Izzy's soon, yeah. and they still are very kosher-driven. Right. And the history behind, as you will learn in the next episode. Yeah. Um, so just curious. I'm sure there's probably some sort of significance there. But I, I'd love to shift gears. and mm -hmm. Because, what, chili. Chili is so chili, big here, yep, yep. Right? Let's talk a little bit about the history of Cincinnati chili and really how some of those rivalries began. Well, uh, it's a good time to talk about Cincinnati chili because everybody ought to uh, be planning right now for next year because Cincinnati chili was unveiled in 1922. So, so, this is ooh, so hundred. exciting. So you can, yeah, so you chili can. Chili every day. Chili every day for 2022. So you can, you can trace the origins of what we refer to as Cincinnati chili, of course, back to Empress chili, which uh, it's always been one of my favorite factoids about Empress chili is that it it was created in a burlesque theater. So, what? so it, it's they just needed. They didn't. They didn't have access to the oysters. Yeah, so, yeah, right. <laughs> so it was. Uh, uh, it was called Empress Chili. Uh, because it was the chili parlor within the building that housed the Empress Theater. And the Empress Theater was a, a burlesque theater that in later years was known as the Gaiety Burlesque uh, Theater. Mm. It, was, it was demolished to make room for the downtown library. But the Karajic brothers opened that first parlor in 1922, at the time, if, if you look around, you will see that there were other chili parlors in Cincinnati, but those other chili parlors were imitation Texas uh, chili. So you know, this actually brings up a good point. Yeah. Why did a Greek slash Macedonian style chili take hold here <sighs> versus a, you know, a Texas, Texas or Southern chili because of our trade routes. Abs absolutely a wonderful question. And the issue is quality because the reason 
that Texas chili exists is to cover up spoiled meat. So, oh, calling so, them yeah. out. Get so, out of town. So, we don't want that here. So, hey, Texas, shots were just fired. If, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. If, if you if you look at where heavily spiced meat dishes are located, they tend to be in very warm environments. Texas, Mexico, India, Indonesia, mm. the, those sorts of things. That's where you get these heavy spices put on top of meat dishes. And the reason is it's so difficult, or certainly back in the 1800s, early 1900s, it was so difficult to keep meat fresh that after it started getting a little wanky, you'd put a lot of pepper on it to cover You're up the masking taste. masking the quality. And basically, that's what the chili parlors in Cincinnati were doing. These are places that sold roast beef sandwiches, uh, hamburgers, uh, that sort of thing. And they'd take yesterday's leftovers and grind them up and put a bunch of spices in them. And that, that became the chili. The difference with the Karyajev brothers with their Macedonian chili is this was their first dish. This was their signature dish. And they used fresh meat and good cuts to make their chili because they were basically borrowing a meat sauce that had developed been developed in Macedonia and this this was this was uh, your prime dish so empress was the staple chili um, brand right out the gate and i imagine then the brands that we also know and love today the skylines the gold stars etc they spun off of empress in some sort of a way yeah, be- because I'm feeling very guilty trespassing on my friend Dan Wellert's uh, territory Ooh. talking about food. I'm going to put in a little plug for Dan, Dan's, <laughs> yes. Dan's, Dan. Dan, yes. Dan's book on the authentic history of Cincinnati chili. Dan actually includes in his book a family tree of Cincinnati chili. And oh, he, so cool. he proves... We will have to lo- link that in the show notes. For yeah, our, he, our he proves... That every brand of chili that we know uh, in Cincinnati today can be traced back directly to Empress Chili. That the the Skyline folks started out uh, using the Empress recipe, Gold Star, et cetera, et cetera. It all goes back to Empress. So, and where did the creation of like the three way and the four way and the five way? Because you talk about spaghetti and and the the chili and the cheese, and that seems to be very much a Cincinnati staple, right? When did that come about? Actually, from the beginning, from from the beginning, really? because I'm I'm going to crib go to my crib notes here. Uh, <laughs> In the Mediterranean area, there were a number of dishes. Uh, one of them was uh, pasticcio, and the other one is moussaka. And uh, both of these are spiced dishes, not overly spiced. And that's that's the distinction of Cincinnati chili. You know, Texans, you know, kind of downplay Cincinnati chili, saying that it's uh, it's not hot enough to to really be chili. Mm. And that's really a characteristic of it is that. Uh, Cincinnati chili, this Macedonian chili, was developed to have a broad array of flavors. It's got yeah. some heat, but it's also got this depth to it. And so this pasticcio and moussaka were served on pasta in Macedonia. And so while these other chili parlors in Cincinnati 
the day after it was hamburger, it becomes chili. Uh, you could walk in and get a bowl of chili, and it was just the chili in a bowl. At Empress, you would get the meat sauce served on top of pasta because that's what they did in Macedonia. When Empress first opened, what was that chili experience if you were to walk into their location? Would you say it's pretty similar to, to what we even experience now? It depends on the parlor that, that, you, that you go to. The photos that have survived of the early uh, Empress parlors indicate that uh, they must have done a lot of sandwich business, mm. a lot of coffee business. This is uh, dining at a stool. Any restaurant uh, downtown, there were very few dinner restaurants in the downtown area. You know, the Masonette was there for a long time, and you had an, a, a number of them. But the bulk of food business in Cincinnati was uh, lunchtime because uh, people would yeah. come come into work from uh, the outer reaches. They would have lunch, and then they would, would go home for dinner. And so Cincinnati was just chock-a-block with these uh, walk-in, sit on a stool, grab something, 20 minutes later, you're back at the office. Shifting gears a little bit, when did Finley Market become a thing? Oh, uh, uh, Finley Market, this is uh, an interesting twist in Cincinnati history. Since uh, Finley Market is the only surviving public market in a city that once had dozens of them. And the weird thing about Findlay surviving is that it may be the youngest of the public markets. So wow. in the early days of Cincinnati, you can look at the maps of Cincinnati and as early as 1802, as they're laying out the streets, they have spots reserved for markets. So the Pearl, Pearl Street Market uh, would have been in the neighborhood of the Underground Railroad uh, mm -hmm. uh, Freedom Center. You had the uh, uh, Court Street Market. You had oh, j just markets, M uh, multitude, and so and and that was where you that was where you did where you did your shopping. Findlay Market is located in a spot that for many years was outside the city limits. Uh, uh, mm. Liberty Street. Liberty so how, Street. How and why did it survive then if it wasn't? Well, be, uh, because the other markets were in areas that were developing pretty rapidly. And so Court Street Market, Pearl Street Market, all of those markets were in areas that became valuable real estate property for skyscrapers, for, mm -hmm. for larger businesses, uh, corporate headquarters, that sort of thing. Whereas Findlay Market remained in what is still today largely a residential uh, neighborhood. You know, the buildings all around it are, are households. But when all of these markets were open in the city of Cincinnati, that's where you did your shopping. And you pretty much had to do your shopping every single day. You know, you, yeah, did, you didn't have nice. a refrigerator. Mm, and, yeah. so, and so you'd have to get your chicken, uh, you know, that day or your slice of beef or something. And so they were located where they were convenient to the customers. Refrigeration really changed the game for homes and I'm sure those who are in the restaurant business as well. But then you think of, you're talking about corporations. When did Kroger come into play and, and how did Kroger get its start here? Ah, Barney Kroger 
was uh, an incredible, yeah, incredible (laughs) inventor. Uh, uh, Barney Kroger is uh, kind of the Henry Ford or the Thomas Edison of grocery stores Mm. because it used to be that if you wanted food, you had to go to all these different shops to get your food. So if you wanted meat, you went to the butcher. And if you wanted bread, you went to the bakery. And if you wanted fish, you went to the fish market. You know, when Findlay Market was first opened, it was only meat inside and anything mm. else, fit, fish, oh, wow. vegetables, everything was, was on the outside. It's still very heavily a lot of meat right. too, but right. yeah, yeah. I mean, it makes and, sense. And, and so you'd have to make all these multiple trips. What we consider, you know, I went to the grocery store and just bought a bunch of household cleaning stuff, you know, <laughs> that, that was unheard of. Groceries meant packaged goods. And so you would get, uh, you would canned get canned oysters. Uh, yeah. Canned oysters. Yeah, you would, you <laughs> would, you would get, uh, dried beans. Uh, <laughs> you would get, uh, pickles. You would get, uh, rice. And what year was this too? Sort of thing. So Barney Kroger in 1883, Oh, wow. Earlier than I thought. Yeah. 1883 opened his first store and it was kind of right around the corner from Mm -hmm. the Pearl Street Market. It was down in what they call the bottoms. We call it the banks. They called it the The bottoms. Would you say that was like the first convenience store? I know you're. Uh, Actually, that's 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 modern day, right? That's probably not a bad analogy. You know, Kroger. He did not quite make the leap to self-service. So when you went into yeah. his store, you you still had the point and okay. and somebody had to get stuff and and bring it up uh, for you. So you didn't just run in and grab a loaf of bread and run out. You you still yeah, had I'm to just, have, I'm thinking product-wise. Yeah, but product-wise <laughs> yeah. it was very close to a convenience store. And so his revolution was that you would go to a single place and you would mm. get your meat, you would get your bread, you would get your groceries, you would get your produce, all of that in a single place. So mm. when did it really take off and become this big corporation that we know? Today? Yeah, uh, he, he opened his first store in 1883, and he was well on his way to dominating the Cincinnati market by 1900, 1905, uh, that sort of thing. You can, you can, Look in the old newspapers, the, si- the size of the Kroger advertising uh, ju- ju- just gets... Um, uh, gets bigger and bigger. Yeah, lo- logarithmically bigger. Yeah. <laughs> and I imagine, because we had mentioned refrigeration, refrigeration was a huge game changer then for what he was doing. Oh, sh- certainly. Yeah. Findlay Market, to, to go back to them, did not have refrigeration at all until... Mm the 1920s they did not have water until the what? until the until the 1920s and so there there are lots of descriptions of people going to Findlay market and looking at these sides of beef hanging up covered in flies and oh <laughs> all the, oh gosh ew. and so so did barney kind of did he see that i mean he had to have seen that and he just really took the opposite approach. That's right. He he was a pioneer in creating a, a customer experience, is what we call yeah. it today. He would yeah, he would certainly not have called it that. But uh, but if you went into a Kroger store, you were treated very differently uh, than you would have been at Findlay Market. 
I feel like from a marketing perspective, the city of Cincinnati, you know, you talk about customer experience or P&G and how they were able to, you know, help and brand Crisco. We have, That's a whole nother topic of conversation right. outside of food that we're really, we've, we've been historically good at, which is but interesting. I, I, Ali, I would like to kind of riff on the, uh, what you brought up about refrigeration and freezers. Yeah. Ice cream. Oh, right? yeah. You mentioned earlier. <laughs> you you got to hit all the main topics. <laughs> That's right. You love Grater's ice cream, and go. I do too. Um, so can you dive into the history about Grater's? Yeah. Ice cream has been part of Cincinnati Almost as long as oysters. Uh, the 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 earl <laughs> oyster the, your ice oyster be, oyster, your ice cream being shipped with oysters. Yeah, the <laughs> the uh, earliest advertisement that I have found for ice cream in Cincinnati dates to about 1804. Oh wow! And the um, what Graders has done, Graders and and Aglamises, uh, both, what they have done is preserve the old-fashioned delivery system uh, for mm. ice cream, which is a, a confectionery. If, if you go into graders, you, you can, of course, get ice cream. In Aglomises, you can, of course, get ice cream. But you can also get a variety of candy. And so ice cream was sort of a seasonal dish. Mm. Yeah. You know, you didn't sell a lot of ice cream during the winter, but you sold a lot of chocolate and other other forms which of candy. Makes, yeah, and sense. so Cincinnati had some amazing confectionaries. Uh, and it's interesting to see we how. We still have some today, don't we? Esther Price and. Uh, yeah, we can get it's it, amazing to see uh, <laughs> how some of them have survived. For instance, uh, Ruth Ruth's Parkside Cafe in Northside, which. I, I guess they have desserts and all that, but that's really uh, kind of a step nephew of Moulin's candy, which was like a Crystal Palace confectionery operating in Cincinnati and 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 invented all sorts of candies that are sold around the country, like lemon drops and that sort of thing. But to get back to ice cream, a lot of this, as you as you've pointed out, Patrick, a lot of this uh, really depends on the evolution of refrigeration because prior to refrigeration, you had to use ice that had been saved over from the winter and consequently was pretty expensive. But in the 1930s, 1940s, that's when you start seeing a lot of mass production of ice cream, particularly the category that is referred to as frozen custard Mm. or, or creamy whip. That that just took yes. off like a rocket in the late 1940s. Is that why we have a lot of those? Yes, that is the perfect segue into how. Why do we have so many creamy whips here in the tri-state? Oh, I'm going to so I, many, and I'm, I'm not complaining about it. By the way, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to throw you another curveball. Is um, I I think we have a lot fewer than we used to, and the reason I say that is if you uh, if you look in uh, the advertisements for the newspapers in the late 1940s, early 1950s, there's an ad that ran every week in the daily newspapers in Cincinnati that said, get involved with this craze or hop on this craze for uh, mm. creamy whip uh, type ice cream. And so this company in Cincinnati was selling that equipment 
week after week after week for for 10 years the you know oh, the late wow. 1940s into the 1950s and next to that ad were all the ads from places that were selling their business or wanting to buy their business so wanted to buy uh, operating creamy whip stand how or many do you think there were I, I'm going to guess that, uh, sin, you know, they, they talk about, you know, during the height, Cincinnati may have had 2,000 saloons. I think we probably had about 1,500 creamy whip stands in the 1950s. 1,500. That's just a, 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 wild, a wild guess. <laughs> wow. Uh, because I was looking through the ads, the ones that were for sale. And I thought, I, there's nothing like that there now, you know. So, so yeah. right now, there are very, very few places where you can just walk around the corner and get one. You pretty much have to take a drive someplace. But there's still a lot, just not like they used to be. So, how did we become known for graders then? Again, it's it's survival, good marketing, and and graders resisted the urge to find cheaper ingredients. They resisted the urge to do large manufacturing when they're selling their product as French pot production. What they are talking about is handmade, hand stirred, small batches. And so as much graders as you see around, that's a lot of manual labor involved and any other a company looking at the economics of that would just say, this is ridiculous. We're going to put in a big robot to do this mixing. And graders uh, decided to go with quality. And there's always, always going to be a market, no matter what your product is, for the quality end. So graders combined the confectionery and the ice cream yes. to kind of get your big chunks of chocolate that you like to yep. dig and get today. Well, and and you you kind of mentioned it at the very top. This is, I think, a great sweet treat and note to end on. Uh, your 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 top three graders flavors are <laughs> what, Greg Hand? <laughs> top three. And do you put any toppings on them? <laughs> I I usually don't put any toppings on them. You're a classic guy. Uh, the uh, <laughs> I, I I was quite smitten. With the uh, the Bearcat flavor that they put together Ooh. for for UC's bicentennial uh, a, a, a couple of years ago, it was a curious uh, mixture of uh, of berries and chocolate and and stuff and uh, and only uh, you would would describe an ice cream as curious. By <laughs> way. That's right. <laughs> but uh, other other than that, I'm I'm a sucker for uh, for anything with chunks. Uh, you know the just pe- any of the chunks. Yeah, bear, uh, you know the raspberry with the chunks and the uh, the pecan with the chunks. Anything with with chunks in it. Give me uh, anything that will ruin my karma for all eternity, and I'll eat uh, it. <laughs> now this this has come full circle, and now I think it's time that we all get ourselves some ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> right? Thank you so much to, for taking the time today. Always a pleasure. Good to see both of you. Number one, love Greg Hand. Number two, I think I'm ready to get some ice cream today. My stomach just growled, so I'm right there with you.
Oh, yes. And but just going back to Greg Hand, he is one of the greatest people to converse with because he always brings a unique history nugget and fact to the table that I never knew. And personally, for me, this go around, it was the fact how Crisco was created and formed here. No idea. Did not know that either. And especially it had such a big impact on you know, the cooking throughout the world and mm-hmm. even baking. I just remember my grandma making it in her pie crust. So I did not know that. And we are now smarter because we do know that fact. Smarter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the innovation of, of with Crisco and the refrigeration and talking about Barney Kroger. So many food innovations here. Yep. Yeah. And not even know. I mean, we're aware of it to a point, but we really have never done that deep dive into the history of Cincinnati food and grocery and grocers. So I'm looking forward personally to start to talk to some of these food brands that are staples to this city moving forward to learn more of that intricate history under their brand and under their umbrella. I am too, but I don't think we're ever going to talk to a oyster producer no. here in Cincinnati. Yeah. Let's not do that. Again, those, those <laughs> let's, let's get those oysters. No Ohio River oysters, please. Can we have fresh Ohio River lobsters. <laughs> and on that note, Allie, I think it's time to cheers. Prost. Cheers. And here's some necessary legal stuff. Allie Martin and Patrick Bailey developed the When Pigs Fly podcast in collaboration with the Up Company LLC. At the time of this recording, we do not own equity or other financial interest in the companies which appear on this show unless otherwise indicated. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinions of the EW Scripts Company and its affiliates or Generator Management LLC and its affiliates or any entity which employ us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. We have not considered your specific financial situation nor provided any investment or legal advice on this show. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next week. We also want to give a shout out to Claire and Christian of Moonbow. They're the two artists of our intro song, which is so catchy and gets stuck in our heads all the time. So bop over to Spotify or wherever you find your music and give them a listen. And Like the Night by Moonbow is courtesy of Silver Lake Sync.